Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide. From Sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond. Here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. So our guest today is Alex Barrera. Alex is the founder of the Aleph Report, the co-founder at tech.eu, founder at Press42, and a real staple of the Madrid startup ecosystem. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much, Andre, for inviting me. A big pleasure being here. It's great to have you here. I apologize. I'm not, I've gotten much better at pronouncing foreign last names. However, I've never been able to roll my R's. <laughs> and so I'm not, I'm not sure if I was supposed to roll uh, the R in your last name. Um, well, the, but I'm not, I'm not, unfortunately not capable of doing it. No, it's okay. I mean, my real name is Alejandro. And a lot of people go like, Ale Alejandro? I'm like, Dude, you know, just keep it at Alex. And that's way simpler. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. So, I mean, Alex, let's let's start this off just talking a little bit about how you originally just got involved in this whole world of startups. I saw that you started Tetuan Valley yep. back in the early days, but what was your kind of first entry in, into this whole world? Well, it was, I would say, uh, accidental entry in a way. So I went to the U.S. to finish my degrees. I went to Berkeley. Go Bears. I'm sorry, Stanford. And... Uh, <laughs> And I wanted to stay there. I wanted to pursue my PhD there. And it just became really hard at the time. They weren't granting any visas. And so I had to get back to Spain. And so I wonder, I said, well, maybe if I go to work with a company that is working in the U.S., eventually I can move there. Uh, So I tried, had several interviews, and all the offers were so shitty that I said, like, you know, if you're going to offer me this stuff, I'm just going to work for myself, do my own company and eventually, you know, raise money and get there. And that was kind of how I started basically out of despair for wanting to move there. Um, then along the way, I just forgot the moving there and I just kept doing startups. And so what 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 made you want to go into the because it seems like you after the early days kind of took the, the media route with Press 42 with tech.eu. And so what, what, what made you veer in that direction? Well, that's an interesting twist. So I have a very eclectic background. So even though I studied computer science and specialized in AI, I always loved writing. And my mom is a writer, my dad is a writer. And so it kind of run in the family. My family used to have a media group. So, you know, I was around journalists. I was around media when I was growing up. So I kind of always been back and forth between the tech world and the media world. And so eventually at one point when I left the whole acceleration programs and investing and all that stuff, I just realized that people really had a hard time telling stories and and writing about that stuff. And that's how I always ended up helping them or writing or co-founding media companies. I, I, I always naturally gravitated towards that. So the confluence of technology and media has always been like my sweet spot, I would guess. I think that's why I like reading your blog so much, just because you, I mean, you're, you're very well articulated, but you also have a technical uh, expertise and knowledge that I think is really interesting in how, how you bring everything together in your writings. I guess, when did you, you came to school in the US, when, when did you head back to Madrid? 
So I was there for a brief uh, stint. So I had actually finished my degree here in Spain. So I did computer engineering. And one day walking down one of the corridors at my university, I saw that they had this program with UC Berkeley. And so I brought it back home and, and I told my dad and said, look what I saw. And my dad looked at me and he said like, oh, you want to go there? I'm like, dad, are you fucking insane? Like, that's like Mecca for any computer engineer, right? You know, uh, Unix was invented there. Half of the computer stuff came out of Berkeley. And he's like, well, let's try and get you there. So eventually I actually made it there. I got a grant also to get there. And I spent like four months. And then I spent the next, I would say, four years, five years on and off. So kind of going maybe twice a year eventually became a, a guest speaker there. So I kind of gave a couple of talks, which was fun, you know, going from student to finally, you know, being a teacher or professor there was pretty cool. So that was kind of my connection. It wasn't long, but I kept stretching it. The problem I had was the visa, basically. So I couldn't stay longer. Right. And that's becoming more and more of a problem. Yeah, it's it's became, well, I don't know. I would say that in a way, I'm in love with the Bay Area, or at least with the the incarnation I experience of the Bay Area. But now when I look at what's going on there, it's just so, so sad. And it just crushes my heart when I see that. Like all the culture I saw when I was there, just completely wiped out by the tech world. And I don't know, as someone that stays in between, I value art and history and so the social aspect as much as I value the technology aspect. You know, when this equation gets out of whack, it's just painful to watch, either on one side or the other one. So I don't know. At one point, I stopped wanting to go there because I realized that what was happening in Europe at the time, especially in Eastern Europe, was was really interesting. In the Bay Area, things were already developed. You already had a lot of VCs, a lot of technology, a lot of art, a lot of culture going on as in comparison to what was going on in half of Europe, where they were finally joining the European Union. All these amazing people were developing new stuff, developing technology, still having a hard time explaining what they were doing because they were very technical, right? So it was kind of the opening up of part of Europe to the technology world and to the startup world, I would say, more on the mix or, or blend between technology and marketing and commercial commercialization of these things. So eventually I just said, you know, why why do I want to keep traveling to the Bay Area when, you know, the real shit is happening here? And and why did you say um why did you say particularly interesting in what's what's happening in Eastern Europe Europe? Because I mean from what I've seen sitting here in the US, most of the big startup hubs have been you know in the West, Berlin, Paris London, well, I guess, if you... that's an, it, it is true that most of the hubs are in the in Western Europe, but I would say 80% of the talent is in Eastern Europe. So mm. it's, uh, mo- I would say most of the U.S. companies actually develop stuff with developers from Eastern Europe, either from Poland, from Romania, from Ukraine. Like all the big startups have had technical teams there. First of all, it's cheaper to uh, hire people and you won't find the kind of expertise that they have anywhere in the U.S. Well, that's gross generalization, but in general, it's really hard to catch that kind of technical quality in the U.S. It's, it's very disputed amongst the big companies, right? 
So it's interesting because I was involved in the opening up of a lot of these ecosystems, both in Poland and Romania, Croatia. And it was amazing. You know, some of these people, early people I I mentored or I worked with or collaborated with ended up going and building these huge companies that went through Y Combinator and then raised shit ton of money and became like one of the leading companies. So it's kind of interesting to have been involved in the beginnings when there was a big desert and, and, and no one there, but just geeks. So the point was you had to help the geeks come out and understand that a company is not just technology, but business and marketing and commercialization and PR and all these other things that in general, Eastern Europe is, is pretty bad at. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that Eastern Europe would have better engineers than Western Europe. Maybe, maybe it's because of the weather. Uh, just because in Spain, <laughs> in Spain, you, you're just going to go outside and go to the beach. Whereas, I mean, it's super cold in Poland, I would assume. And so you're just going to uh, be inside on your computer all day. Well, I would say that... It's not a very I, scientific... Uh... <laughs> there, there's a, yeah, there's no scientific proof of this. I, I'll just give my opinion. But I would say that a lot of Eastern Europe has been under the Soviet bloc. And for many, many years, the academic excellence has been like the hallmark of the region. You know, you would only get out of being poor by going to university and becoming a professor. That was like one of the top things in the Russia or the Russian Empire of the 19th century. Incidentally, I'm actually reading now the short stories of Anton Cherkov. And you can clearly see on those stories how... You know, the, the professor, the academic is like the freaking superhero there, right? That's the, the poor people and then the excellence of the teachers, of the professors, of the researchers. And I guess that that has been like part of the DNA of the region for a very long time. And that's why, you know, all these brains are there. It's just like they have these amazing universities and People are just naturally, they naturally gravitate towards engineering, towards mathematics, towards physics, right? That's why you have all these amazing Russian scientists or Ukrainian uh, scientists. And I, I think it's part of the history of the region in a way. But the fact is, these people are incredible. Uh, they have a mind like very few regions have. I would say, and this is something I know you're going to bring up eventually, but I would say it's the same kind of culture as we see in some parts of Asia, right? The, the tiger mom culture of, you know, you have to excel in academics. You have to be number one. You have to play, you know, I don't know how many instruments because that is what's going to get you accepted in society. Hmm. That's an interesting insight. Maybe the, maybe the U.S. is losing its edge globally for entrepreneurship and startups because their universities are sinking. Well, I would say um, this is, let's get it with a grain of salt here because I know a lot of people get a, a pretty annoyed with this shit. Um, the U.S. as an empire, as what has always happened historically with any empire, let it be the Spanish one or the French one or the British one, uh, it ends up collapsing, right? You have a golden age and then it's not that you will disappear or that you will uh, let go of your um, global um, profile, if you want to see like that, or the, the global uh, gravita, but it, it will decline. And every single indicator in the U.S. shows you that the U.S. empire, if you think about it as a, as a global power, is declining, uh, every single one, 
from creativity, innovation, education, investment, um, the quality of jobs, the kind of advanced jobs and stuff like that. And the interesting thing is now the current battle or, or war between the U.S. and China it's going to have, I believe, and this is personal opinion, but I think it's going to have unintended consequences for the U.S. I think the the basic analysis is, oh, yeah, you know, we cut the cord on China. And now Huawei is in deep shit and Xiaomi is in deep shit and all this and Baidu and all these big uh, Chinese companies are, are in trouble. When the reality is that you just cut the cord and force them to be independent, which they were gearing towards eventually but now they are accelerating towards that goal and the truth is when it comes to things like semiconductors in some areas they are already ahead of the u.s so we will see what's going to happen in the next two three years but i think we're just going to see an incredibly clearer picture of the u.s losing their superiority and their edge on certain areas and again i don't want to say you know the u.s is going to collapse because it's not but I think people that are on the front runs of uh, on the on the they're front runners of some of these uh, spaces. They're gonna feel it. They're, they're gonna see how they lose a certain edge in certain areas. I mean, a hundred percent. And uh, you know, I see I've seen the same thing over the past couple of years. China will be the new dominating empire in the world. And this, the, the, there, there's been this kind of development of the uh, conversation around how two internets are developing the Google internet and the Huawei internet. Yeah. And I think you're, you're right. This, what, what Trump did was basically, and what Trump has been doing with his isolationist uh, policies is he's just given the world to China. That, that's basically what he's done. And this, this Huawei ban is actually a good thing for China in the long, in the long term. Uh, Huawei is taking over Africa Huawei is taking over Southeast Asia. Yep. Same things happen in Latin America. I read your article about all the European assets that China owns. And um, yeah, I think, I, I think you're spot on. Yeah, I mean, China's and it's going to be, I think we're going to live interesting times because the Asian culture in general, and more specifically China culture, is so different from what we've been exposed to in the West. Let it be European uh, colonialism or the U.S. empire. It's very different, despite having massive ingredients of capitalism, right? And that they're driving on the capitalism engine. But deep down, they're very different. And so I'm personally very curious to see what's going to happen. I don't know if their commercial appetite is going to make them curve or you know, be less aggressive when it comes to things like surveillance and invasion of privacy and all this stuff, part of what Huawei is being accused of. And so I don't know if their drive to sell more is going to curve that or eventually, as you said, we're going to see, I wouldn't even say two internets. There's even uh, some talks about having three internets. You know, you have the US internet, you're going to have the China one and you have you're going to have the European one, which to some extent, while Europe is not a dominant power, when it comes to security, when it comes to privacy and human rights, they, are the, they have the strongest opinion or strongest voice there. So I don't know if we're going to see a, a blend or, or a fragmentation or, or eventually China, you know, 
kind of tuning down a little bit that that part that that aggressiveness that they have right now. Yeah, I, don't, I to be honest, I don't see that happening. I mean, they're not turning it down against their own people. Uh, I have no no doubt in my mind that that's going to ramp up. One thing that you're definitely spot on with, and I've actually researching this and reading books on this more and more, is uh, the life cycle of empires. Yep. Throughout history, they typically last 250 years or 10 generations. Uh, the U.S. is, uh, I guess, 250 years would be 2026 yep. for the U.S. And, and the millennials are the 10th generation. Uh, and, and so, yeah, <laughs> not, not, not to be negative, but, but I mean, I think that, uh, you know, we're in a state of globalization where even if the quote unquote U.S. empire does fall, I still think that right now is like right now is still the best time in all of history to be alive and be a human being. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess my, my point being, uh, some of this conversation has been a little doom, doom and gloomy, <laughs> but I'm still very optimistic about the future and, you know, some of the technologies that will probably help to cause the fall and the unrest in the long run, I think will usher in a much better, um, a much better society for everyone. Yeah, I mean that that's you're totally right and I, I don't want to turn this into a gloomy conversation. I always get my friends to say like, "Dude, you're such a realist." Uh, and I'm like, "Well, I'm just putting things as I see. I'm not j- judging them. I'm not saying it's good or bad. Uh it's going to be terrible. I just state what I see and then it's up to us to make the best out of that. And I definitely see amazing angles that we have right now as you said the fact that we're in a global economy is absolutely stunning like the the fact that you can talk with anyone in the world just the fact that we're having this conversation right now it's just a beautiful statement of of the power of what we built at the same time i would say that way too many people are not fully aware of the implications sometimes or the consequences of the the power of having this technology also, so uh, and now I'm not even getting into the countries in, or regions, but in general, um, I think we're having like the, the youngest generation that's coming now. So the, the 19, 18 years old, 20 years old um, are having a big difference in their point of view towards both technology and what uh, and what society is building right now. Um, and it's interesting to see. And I, I I'm a judge at many startup competitions and. You can clearly see the the change in the pattern uh, where you're seeing less um, uh, consumer oriented uh, applications or or projects uh, and a, a big a swift change towards more of a sustainability and more towards social aspects of uh, using technology to help others right so I do believe we are living extraordinary times the fact that less people die of all kind of illnesses and you know even though in some places the whole vaccination shit is going a little wacko but overall less wars less famine less people dying a better um society in a way uh more of a of um they say this mid-society strata that can sustain themselves that don't have to work the shit out of their lives to survive still a lot of problems and in a way, I would say that that's precisely the reason why the U.S. is going off the rails. Like, if you look at what the U.S. empire had built until now, 
it was precisely that stuff. You know, the the middle range of society finally had gone out of, you know, slavery and poverty. And now they were living a good life. And then now the gap is widening again. And in a way, technology has to do with that. It's a, it's a, it serves as an accelerator of that. It's not the only reason by any by any stretch, okay? But it's definitely an accelerator to that. That's why, even though it sounds gloomy, if we want to retain what we've built so far, which I think is extraordinary, uh, we have to be aware of this. We have to understand that democracies and freedom is not something that we should take for granted and never in the human history it's been something that has existed on its own. You have to fight for it and you have to care for it, right? And that's where technology, regulations, political powers are now all clashing. And so we have to be careful how we build the future. And you wrote a great article on on that exact topic, which I'll definitely link in the show notes. What technologies or what areas do you think is going to have the most pronounced clash? between like the, the startup ecosystem and, and politics? Well, I would say that the, for me, the largest one is definitely the automation of, of work. Uh, and that has multiple ramifications, uh, being one of them, the, the uh, autonomous vehicles, obviously, you know, and the, the um, automation of transportation. Uh, but honestly, everyone kind of focuses there. And it is... Uh, something that's going to disrupt our society. It's already disrupting society. But when you think, when you think a little bit more abstract and you think about automation at large, it's like 50, 60% of our jobs will be done by AIs, by robots. And that has massive implications, not just the fact that people are going to be humans are going to be obsolete is how do you absorb that as a country or as a nation or as a region when that's happening in 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 a year or that's happening in eight months, right? Because the rolling up of this thing, the rolling out of these things are going to be are going to be fast. And this is for me one of the points that few people understand when I talk about technology and their and the unbalancing capacity that it has on society. Most people bring up the Industrial Revolution. And most people will tell you, yeah, well, we, ha- we went through the same stuff during the Industrial Revolution, and here we are, right? You know, we destroyed a lot of jobs, all those that were manual jobs, but at the same time, we created new jobs. Um, there's, and, and there's nothing wrong with that metaphor or that uh, comparison, because it is true. Uh, but there's a big difference uh, in my mind, which is, the technology we had in the Industrial Revolution has nothing to do with the technology we have now in terms of acceleration and exponential growth, right? And this is something that for human beings is very hard to cope with because we, are, we live linear lives. For us, everything is linear. And it's hard for us to think in terms of exponential. Now, when you look at how technology is evolving, and especially the automation part, it's just accelerating exponentially. And that's not something that we're uh, good at coping with. Uh, and this is one of the reasons, if you want to see like an indirect um, uh, consequence of this, is how many people are breaking their minds in the past 10 years. It's insane. I was reading the stats uh, some years ago, but 
the the uh, fastest growing religion and even though i don't like to call it religion or philosophy in the us wasn't christianism wasn't judaism it was actually buddhism specifically zen buddhism mm. and the reason being was because people were uh, gravitating towards uh buddhism as a way to heal their mind and this only happens if you want to keep pace with technology right and we never saw that before this that's the thing never before in the history of humankind we saw humans being outsmarted and broken down by machines which is exactly what we're seeing right now so i tell a lot of people you have to let go of trying to be or trying to keep up with the machine because you won't be able to do that if you try you will break your mind um right so Right. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I think the biggest difference between now and the Industrial Revolution, I think you're right, like new jobs will be created, but the change in all this stuff with automation is going to happen so fast that the transition and the retraining and all of that is what's going to cause all the all the pain with this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's my point that while we're going to see a similar situation and Humans, by nature, are very adaptive, and we will adapt, but it's going to go fast, which means that eventually you're going to put a lot of people out of a job in a very short time span. And I keep wondering how many governments or nations have um, like a, a plan to deal with that. And every time I talk with you know the EU Commission, with the Spanish government, with uh, the Estonian government, with all the different governments that I know of, and I talk with the with people working at the government, and I raise this issue, they stare at you with empty eyes, and and the feeling I have is, you know, uh, someone else will figure it out, <laughs> and it's just scary, honestly, to 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 see that, right? To see that this is coming, and no one has uh, rat cares. Or has it any clue how to absorb this? Right. Well, so, uh, <laughs> so uh, the one politician that, and, and you're right, so it's, uh, so much to unpack there. I think normal people, you're right, in terms of breaking their brain, and the people you're referring to are the people in the startup world that are in it. And so when you talk about regulators, I mean, they're even more on the uh, old school just super slow moving. And so it's yeah. even, I think, exacerbated in at the government level. I do think um, the Democratic candidate for president, Andrew Yang, um, his freedom dividend, which is $1,000 per month, is interesting in that the funds for that will directly come from taxing AI, Yeah, which I think makes a lot of sense as long as you're able to implement that correctly. The only thing I would say is I, I agree with uh, Naval Ravikant. It's a very slippery slope if you start allowing people to vote themselves more money. Once you kind of get that precedent set, you're really going to be... Uh, it's, it's a slippery slope from there. No, no. <laughs> um, but I think, I think that personally, in, in my mind, the biggest disruption that's going to happen is what we just saw with Facebook's Libra coin. <laughs> Facebook, in my opinion, was already one of the most powerful entities in the world, more, pow more powerful than most governments. Yeah. Now that you're adding this, this new Libra component, I mean, as soon as the Libra coin, as, as soon as it goes live, 
it's going to be a better store of value than any African currency, than any South American currency, probably any Southeast Asian currency. And man, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I fully agree with the with the taxing of AI. The the thing is, it's hard to understand or to predict all the ramifications of what's going to happen there. That's why I was saying that for me, the the most challenging clash that we're going to see is the automation of everything. Because as you say, it connects with labor, it connects with human rights, it connects with a privacy, it connects with uh, taxation or with a uh, fiscal aspect. And so there's some people say like, you, you shouldn't tax robots, you shouldn't have a tech tax. Um, but the truth is, we're going to have to figure out something. Um, and literally, there's no one that can give a, let's say, a, a, a route, right, that we can follow. It's all going to be trial and error, and we're going to see many different implementations in many different regions. And eventually, the one that works the best is going to be adopted by everyone else, right? And that's how we humans in society have always done it. Um, but yeah, going back to Facebook, oh my God, I don't know, uh, as a strategist, when I look at what Facebook has been doing in the past year and a half, it's just like, how can you be so smart about building a product and be so retarded at running it? Um, they've been doing everything they could do to shoot themselves on the foot. And the whole Libra thing, while being extremely powerful, I think it's like the worst moment to release that. Like you're already under scrutiny by Congress. You're already in the in, in the cross uh, in the in the, being a target by the EU Commission by all those different countries, and you decided to implement this shit without talking with the SEC <laughs> and Congress. It's just like, okay, you know, if they had any doubts about breaking you down. You just gave them the perfect excuse to do this shit. And right after Facebook is Amazon. And I don't know, it's just funny because it's like everyone is so excited about this. I'm like, why are you so excited? I mean, I can definitely see the power of this, but it's like, this is just wrong. As you said, it's scary that Facebook has this amount of power in the hands of one person or a set of people that so far had clearly shown that they have very, uh, how to put it this, very shaky ethical uh, grounds, right? Very uh, disputable morals. And so it's like, okay, this is just such a bad idea. And just start projecting any scenario from the moment they release Libra to the moment that people start using it en masse. And, oh, my God, what's going to happen when people start, you know, uh, using this to do fraudulent shit or sell stolen goods or, you know, all the other myriad things that you can see in the deep web, in the dark web right now. And that's going to go through uh, Facebook because, oh, Lord, behold, they've never been able to to <laughs> control that on their platform at it, as it stands right now. They're definitely not going to do it when they launch this either. So, I don't know. I think it's just this huge clusterfuck that's going to explode eventually. Um, and I'm just eating my popcorn right now. Well, I would be cautious about breaking up Facebook and Google and Amazon 
only because if you look at the top technology companies in the world by market capitalization, if you break those companies up, all you're going to have are huge Chinese conglomerates. You're going to have Tencent, you're going to have Alibaba, uh, you're going you're to have Huawei, and they're going to be by far the most valuable companies in the world. And then you run a risk of every single Chinese technology corporate is large enough to acquire majority stakes in these companies. Like, imagine if China had access to the data that Google and Facebook have. I mean, like, no, I, I think, I think it, it would not be good. I think you're literally spot on in that, in the sense that it's a bad move as it stands right now. But at the same time, you said it yourself. If, is face, if Facebook is more powerful than the U.S. government, what do you think politicians are going to do? It's just like human nature. It's, there is no rationality behind this beyond day one. Right. And, and, and you nail it. The fact that if you do that, you're going to weaken the, the already weak position or weakening position that the U.S. has right now. Uh, you're just going to accelerate that. Um, but at the same time, I don't think politicians are going to allow that to happen. Uh, they're already very pissed with the fact that the Amazon, you know, ships all this stuff uh, around the place. You can just see the rants that Trump has all the time with about this. Um, and, you know, in a way, uh, going back to what you were saying, like the fact that I don't think Chinese companies are going to be able to buy stakes in these companies because there's uh, ciphers in the U.S. that has veto power over those deals. That's true. Still, they will probably they'll probably find a way, though. But I don't know. It's it's a it's a loose loose situation to be honest. But when you think about the power these companies have, and despite the motivation that Congress has to break these companies, I, I'm just afraid that if we don't do that, if we don't put a, a, a tab on this, it's just gonna have massive repercussions over the social aspect, over your people, over your citizens. Yeah. So I don't know. It's 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 a hard. There is no win-win scenario. Let's put it that way. There is no scenario where everyone's going to be happy. <laughs> so I guess the question is, what is less hurtful for society of a country? We need to finish this off with a positive note. Uh, so we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna go into a quick fire round. I'm gonna give you four questions. You have sixty seconds to answer. And I'm going to change up my questions just because we need some positivity right now. Um, so, well, let, let me let me add some positivity here before we go to the to the questions. Uh, I mean, this, despite all the stuff we're talking about, um, I see uh, a new, um, as I say, a new generation that that's deeply caring about values and ethics and morals, and it is going to change. Uh, you can see that, like the new startups that are being built right now. They're not about emojis. They're not about, you know, Tinder and stuff like that. They're about things that matter. They're about feeding people. They're about getting water where it's needed. They're about reducing the the, the gentrification in a city of, you know, getting getting the infrastructure where it needs to be to uh, giving people access to finance. So all these things are happening. Sadly, as it always happens right now, the 1% of these big companies eclipses what's going on. But honestly, I think I'm I'm happy to be able or honored to be able to talk with young people that have their moral system in check. 
So I do believe we're going to get out of this. No, absolutely no doubt about it. That's why I'm saying we live interesting times because we're going to see this happening. The booming of people that care, that are protecting the environment, that are rooting for more sustainability, uh, circular economy things. And I, I never believed that I would see this, but I'm seeing it. I'm seeing more recycling. I'm seeing more sustainability. I'm seeing uh, the rise of clean energy. Uh, the, for God's sake, the, the spread of the electrical car, right? All these things are very good things. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, we, we have to balance all this, all this thing. But overall, I'm a, I'm a very positive and optimistic person, even though I sound very doomsday person. I just maybe I stress those things a little more than anyone else because I just look around and I don't see people uh, <laughs> dwelling on it. And it's like, guys, this is not good, right? We, we have to fight it. Yeah, yeah, let someone else fight it. It's like, no, you know, we are them, right? So we have to push back and make sure that the sustainability to make sure that all these social values are there and are protected. Right? Yes. Uh, so thankfully, young people are doing that. So I'm pretty happy about awesome. that. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, <laughs> but Alex, we're going to go a quick fire round. So first question, let's say it's a, a weekend, beautiful weekend in Madrid. You're taking off from yeah. work. Give us an idea. Like what, 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 is, what does that weekend in Madrid look like? Oh, whoa, that's awesome. First, I will go and train. Uh, I do martial arts, so I'll go and train Aikido. And then I'll probably take the family for lunch after the training and then in the afternoon, I'll probably take a quick siesta, have a nice tea, and then read uh, during the whole evening until dinner time. And then probably maybe watch a movie or something, read a little more. Um, and that would be my Saturday. And Sunday, more or less the same. Tea, maybe take a walk somewhere with the kids, uh, get some fresh air, um, then read. I'm a big reader, so any time I have for reading... That's that's me. You've been pretty instrumental in a lot of different ecosystem building efforts across Europe. Outside of Spain, what's been your your favorite country to just be in and, and spend time in, and why? Oh wow, that's a really that's a really tough one. I don't have a specific country. I have countries that I have more affinity with, mm-hmm. uh, and I would say, for example, Poland or Estonia, like the Baltics. Um, but there is definitely not a single country that I would say. Uh, you know, this is the place I want to be. I, I love traveling. I love uh, the convergence of cultures. Uh, and right now, if anything, I'm, I'm uh, looking more towards the East. So looking more towards uh, China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan, Korea, uh, more than I'm looking now at Europe. Uh, not because of anything in particular, but because those two regions are colliding right now. Uh, and they're kind of starting to work more together than they did before. So I want to be there in the middle when that happens. What's your favorite business book and why? Whoa, favorite business book. Um, I would say uh, Crossing the Chasm is one of my favorite books. It just, I think, was one of the biggest aha moments I've ever had when I understood that, you know, tech products wouldn't, they they, uh, depend massively on the behaviors and on the perception of people. So it, it, it has nothing to do with features. It has a lot to do with people. And that was a massive aha moment for me because it just like clicked a lot of things that I had in my mind. 
Um, and maybe another book that I would totally recommend is uh, Maverick uh, from Ricardo Semler, who's a Brazilian guy. That was another book that blew my mind in terms of you can build a company differently. You don't need to exploit your employees or pay them uh, shitty salaries to make a great company. And finally, what is your favorite thing about living in Madrid? Mm. Well, there's so many good things here. <laughs> I would say <laughs> food and weather. Uh, without being cliche, I would say my family's here, so that makes it worth it. Um, no, but you know, it's a great city, very vibrant, a lot of things to do, fantastic weather, great food, and you are uh, in a two-hour flight radius. You're nearly anywhere in Europe. Awesome. Well, Alex Barrera, founder at The Left Report, thank you so much for joining us. Well, my pleasure, Andrew. I hope it was helpful and hopefully not too, too doomsday. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, it was um, realistic. We'll say that. Yeah, it was realistic, it, uh, but I, I think... I think Thought-provoking. Thought-provoking. I think that's a good one. And again, uh, I am super optimistic about the future and I am super grateful that I live in uh, this time. Well, let me put it this way. I have three kids. I wouldn't have kids if I didn't believe in the future. So there you are. <laughs> That's true. Point. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at andberk. That's A-N-D-B-E-R-K. To see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world.